So how many of you have already started listening to Christmas music? All right, how many of you like can't wait? You're like, Thanksgiving's here, like turn on the Christmas music. Yeah, I, I was in um, spin class at the Y yesterday, okay? There was like heart thumping, like bone rattling music at spin class set to Oh Holy Night, okay? So it was like the most unique spin class I've ever had. Uh, in terms of the music. Uh, so whether we like it or not, it's here. And uh, if we've begun to listen to Christmas music, a few years ago somebody said this, if you're already hearing Christmas music, it's already a good time to begin to prepare for Advent. And since I've already heard that, and I assume many of you all have uh, leading into this weekend, um, even though Advent begins a week from now, technically, I think it's still important for us, especially in our rhythm of every other week, that we begin to prepare now. So in some senses, we're going to prepare this morning to prepare for Advent, if that makes sense. In some way, you know, as we talk about Advent, it's kind of like slowly turning up the dimmer switch to become brighter and brighter and brighter in the room. That's what we're trying to do as we lean into uh, Christmas Day at at the end of December. And uh, whether we like it or not, our hearts and our minds are currently being bombarded by messages and commercials Uh, and songs and decorations, and those can be good, but we also have to acknowledge that we're also being being bombarded with values and with narratives that aren't always true, even though they look appealing. So we have to be very aware of that. You know, Advent teachings and Advent series can go one of two directions, right? It can go the sentimental route that can come in line with something you might see on the Hallmark Channel, Or they can actually go in line the other direction, which is filled with kind of this provocative, challenging, prophetic tone to it. And as we were talking as a team, we actually felt like we've probably heard enough of the sentimentality, Hallmark stuff, through Advent. That what was it, what would it look like for us to lean in more over here, where we actually see the story of Jesus with dirt under its fingernails? We see the grit behind it of what's actually happening in order to grasp what it means to wait and respond and live into the way of Jesus. So we we certainly prepare for Jesus' birth, but Advent is that time where we prepare for his second coming. So we actually are practicing two waitings. One, we, we wait with training wheels on of Christ's arrival, which we know he does, but we still need to practice that in the world that we live in. But also that we're preparing not for training wheels, but for the real ride when it comes to his second coming, which we actually begin to do now. I like to say, you know, around this year, each year, that Advent is a time for Christians to stand on our tiptoes. There's, there's a waiting, there's an anticipation, and, and even a requirement on our parts. Um, so I think that this year, more than maybe any other that I can think of, maybe in the last decade, uh, maybe more, that we need hope and we need anticipation, um, something greater. We know it's been a really heavy and hard year. Um, hurricanes and unnecessary and unjust violence and political turmoil and sexual assault by political and cultural leaders. It's a heavy year. It's been a heavy few months. And as I was preparing for this teaching a few, we- a few weeks ago, Joel, and knowing what I was going to teach on, Joel said, hey, do you happen to know that on the, the church calendar, the Christian calendar, this Sunday is actually referred to as Christ the King Sunday, which is exactly what I was preparing for. Just kind of cool. And so with that being said, as we look about, uh, understand this idea of what does it mean for Jesus to be king 
then the question that I had in my mind is, how then do we be the kind of people that await the coming of the king? What does that mean? I'm supposed to wait. Okay, what do you mean? Am I, am I sitting in this I don't know, doctor's waiting room of life until he comes back? I mean, reading old issues of cosmopolitan or men's health or whatever is sitting there in the waiting room? Or, or is there some sort of active role I begin to take? So because of that, I want to give some background. You know I love giving background, and it helps us understand the story more. So let me kind of pull a few things out, and then we're going to tie those strings together here at the end. Okay? So the first one, I mean, this idea of king, we may say, oh, that's great, and we may think of sort of the medieval world or some sort of movie or some sort of cartoon. That's, there's the problem when it comes to awaiting the king. We don't live in a kingdom. So it becomes really difficult for us when we live in a democracy where we vote leaders in and out to actually know what it's like to have a king. And the truth is, if we lived in a kingdom with a king, the truth is this. If we have a good king, we have a good life. If we have a bad king, we have a bad life. Unlike in our system with democracy, that if we have a bad, in our opinion, if we have somebody who's good or bad, it may not trickle down to us directly of whether we have a good or a bad life. But you have a bad king, your life is rough. There's no way around it. You have a good ruling king, your life is good. There's a direct correlation between the type of king you have and the type of life you have that's different from what we understand. It's no majority rule, no peaceful elections. One person gets a say over the kingdom and over your life, whether you like it or not. So we've got to understand king in that context. But there's a, a Greek word I, I want to teach you. It's the word parousia. Uh, and you can see it here up on the screen. It's a little hard to read with the sun this morning. But uh, repeat after me, parousia. Parousia. Now it's used uh, 26 times in the New Testament and it actually means arrival or visit and it kind of has an implication of a visit from a royal authority. Okay, So sometimes when it's used in our Bible, the seven times it's used in the New Testament, there's actually a king that's coming. You know, in Acts there was some, you know, this political leader would come who's got some sort of uh, ruling authority to them. But it also referred to the second coming, the second coming. Now, when the king was coming to your town or city, there was this active preparation. That's what parousia means. It was the king coming, but I have a role to take in order to do that. And it reminds me in England, if you live in a very small town and you are to hear that in the coming months the queen will be visiting your town, everyone in the town works with focused intent to clean and paint and wash and spruce up the entire town to be perfect. That's part of the parousia. You actually have this active role that the queen is going to come to your village in England. Now, there's a joke in England that says that if you don't like the way your village looks, all you need to do is request that the queen visits. Because should she come, your whole town will get behind the effort to spruce and repair and renovate. So this word parousia, it's more than just sprucing up your town because the king is coming. It actually meant something more. Parousia, the second coming, or the coming of some sort of royal king or official, was you don't just wait at your town until the king shows up. You actually together go on a journey and you actually march out to the outskirts of the city to actually meet the king and then together you walk into the city of your, or, or the place where you live. 
that make sense? That's a different thing than just waiting around. We not only spruce everything up, we go out to meet the king and then walk in with the king to the place where we live. That's a parousia. Now, there's something you need to know about this, though. The, the paths in and out, they weren't the, the roads, the paved roads that we have today. Roads there in the ancient world, very difficult to travel on. Huge boulders might have fallen, rolled in the middle of the walking path between towns or villages. No one can move it, so they just actually build a road or, or people just start to walk around it because they just can't change it. So there's big boulders everywhere, giant craters in the ground. Mounds of dirt would pile up as people traveled around, pushing the dust around day after day. And so you can imagine this sort of craggy walking up and down, very treacherous. Uh, I wanna, you know, it's hard for us to understand this because we've got fairly good roads. I mean, you think the turnpike is bad, right? We complain about, about turnpike potholes, and you may complain to your local official or to friends or on social media. But I actually want to show you a couple of pictures. Look at some of these potholes. These are from from Africa and India that I just did big potholes search this week. I mean, like, that's, that's what we're talking about in terms of the traveling conditions. All right, next slide. Uh, this is one in India right now. This is, this is tough. This is a tough situation. That's, that's a, that ruins somebody's day right there. Um, the, these are the kinds of conditions, not like what we see. These are the kinds of conditions, this traveling between the cities. But I want to tell you about Ravi Teja. In April, Ravi Teja was a 12-year-old boy in Hyderabad, India. And he saw a family of three that was trying to avoid a massive pothole with their car. And they swerved out of the way. And this family of three got in a wreck and uh, very, uh, very hurt uh, through that crash. They're just trying to avoid a pothole. And officials in Hyderabad, India had ignored um, the pothole issues for years. And everyone would complain, and there was this big outcry. But 12-year-old Ravi Teja decided he'd do something about it. And so he used, he collected broken bricks and gravel and stones from nearby areas to actually then go in and fill in uh, and repair the potholes at the risk of his own life. And he became known around the city of Hyderabad as a local hero all day. Others would just complain or sit around and do nothing, and he said, I'm going to do something about it. So the parousia, in a sense, is like what Ravi is doing. It's when people are sent ahead to fill in these large potholes, to take out boulders, and to flatten the roads to make them smooth and more easily travelable. travelable. So this is the background that I want us to look at. In Mark chapter 1, you can turn there if you want, and also you can turn to Isaiah I kind of have our thumb in two places, or you can bookmark that uh, <clears throat> on your phone. So John the Baptist who was called to prepare the way for the coming of Jesus. In fact, he's the first leader of Advent because <laughs> he's actually wanting to prepare our hearts for the coming of the King. And in Mark chapter 1, you'll notice, he actually references Isaiah chapter 40. Now, we don't have time to go into it, but there's a slight difference to what it's recorded in Mark to what he's quoting in Isaiah 40. It has to do with a comma, one comma, changes the meaning of Isaiah 40 and Mark chapter 1. We're not going to go into that now. I may put that in the going further. But one comma changes the meaning. But in this case, this is what Mark, uh, uh, Mark says that John is quoting uh, from Isaiah 
chapter 40. And I want you to think about, about Ravi Tejan. And I want you to think about potholes. And I want you to think about the parousia and the coming of the king when I read this passage. This is what John says with the coming of Jesus. He said, a voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Parousia. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see together, see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now I want you to keep that in mind. Okay, so we've got king, we've got parousia, we've got potholes, all coming together, but there's one more we need to understand as we prepare for Advent. And it's a, a figure in history that's well-known and would have been well-known to Jesus. And it's King Herod. And what do we know about Herod? Now, here's why Herod is so important. We have to understand Herod if we're to understand just how political Jesus' birth actually was in the first century. Because if we fail to grasp the reign of Herod, we fail to grasp the explosive arrival of Jesus and what surrounds it. Let me give you a little background on Herod because it's going to shed light exactly on what Jesus is doing. Now, there are different Herods. Let me be clear of that. When we say Herod, Herod is a title that was several different people. Okay? Just like there were several different Caesars and several different Pharaohs, there were several different Herods. The one that we're going to be looking at is Herod the Great, known as Herod the Great. Now, when Herod died, Jesus was a little child when Herod the Great died. And the next Herod took over, his son, Herod Archelaus. Okay? So Herod's two sons, Herod Archelaus, took a section of, of uh, Israel-Palestine. And then Herod Antipas took over the other side. So when we talk about Herods, we got to know there are different Herods there. But Herod the Great was put in charge by Caesar in Rome to rule over Palestine. And he was actually, a, there's a reason he's called Herod the Great. But Caesar in Rome put him in charge of Palestine, and there's no doubt that everyone in Palestine in the first century knew who he was. He was the country's largest employer. You couldn't go a single day without seeing one of his impressive buildings that he constructed, or to even walk on one of the roads that he built. His imprint was everywhere. On Palestine. And he was known for several things his wealth, his buildings, his money, his cruelty, his violence, his paranoia, and his insecurity. This man loved control. He was self centered, insecure, narcissistic, violent, and power hungry. Every Jew hated him because he was a virtual monster. Mass executions happened regularly, riots were snuffed out quickly with a bloodbath. He would never have allowed, allowed a Jewish Lives Matter rally in Jerusalem, ever. In fact, when a protest happened, there's record that somebody picked up a few stones and threw them at a Roman soldier who they hated. And by the end of the day, Herod had given the command to the soldiers to execute tens of thousands thousands of Jews, as if to say, you will never do that again under my watch. This is one cruel man. Again, he was known for his building uh, structures. He built seven palaces for himself. In fact, the smallest of his seven palaces was larger 
than the one palace that Caesar had in Rome, just to give you some perspective. He was an architect of all architects. He built hippodromes for horse racing, palaces, theaters, amphitheaters, fountains, shrines, fortresses, aqueducts, and entire new cities. And even in Israel today, wherever you go, you can see evidence of Herod's buildings 2,000 years later. Now, I'm looking around in the room. There's some people that went on the Israel trip, and they'll remember this. The Israel trip we took several years ago, um, they're remnants of the temple in Jerusalem. You can still see and climb on today. We climbed Masada, which is this big fortress at the Dead Sea. It took about an hour that you can hike up on the mountain, uh, and he built that in honor for him um, before he was buried. Um, There's another place that we hiked to the top of called the Herodian. It's just outside of Bethlehem. There was no hill there, and he literally had a mountain built. This enormous mountain took us 30 minutes to climb to the top. That was his mausoleum that he commanded. When he died, that he'd be built, I mean, that he'd be buried in there. So big that after 2,000 years, people have known that Herod was buried in there. About 10 years ago, they found his remains. 10 years ago. This is one massive structure, and this is one massive builder in Herod. In college, I snorkeled in the Mediterranean Sea and explored the remains of one of the foundation stones of Herod's harbor port in Caesarea. Still there today. This guy knew how to build. But his crowning achievement was the temple in Jerusalem. Not because he was religious. He hated the Jews but because he thought that if he did them a political favor, they would like him, which they didn't. He had 10 wives. Twice, when he went away on dangerous missions, he arranged with trusted guards that if he didn't return, that they were to kill his favorite wife, Miramne, to be executed because he didn't want anyone else to have her at at his death. Later, suspecting dishonesty and infidelity, he killed her anyway. He killed his uncle Joseph, a few wives, three of his sons, which is unthinkable, and his mother-in-law, which is not quite unthinkable. When Herod was angry or paranoid or insecure, or rolled. That was the rule. That was the rule. So in Matthew chapter 3, sorry, Matthew chapter 2, in the first three verses, this is what we read in the Christmas story. And because of our sentimentality, we just rush right past it. But listen to this. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea. During the time of King Herod, Magi, and these are, these are pagan astronomers. They don't trust in the one God. They're pagan from the east. We don't know exactly where. And they come over. They're studying the stars. And from the east, they come to Jerusalem, verse 2, and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, wise men come from the east. They ask Herod this troubling question. Where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star. What is the one thing that Herod cannot build, buy, or conquer? A star. No matter what Herod does, he can't get the people to do what? Voluntarily worship, adore, and sing his praises. 
So here are these pagan, wise scholars that come when he's king, Herod. It says, where's this baby king that has a star that you can't have that voluntarily we want to worship, which no one will do for you? Those three verses are explosive. They're explosive. Needless to say, Herod is threatened. It is so explosively political and so politically explosive that Herod's response was intense and over the top. He did not take his anger to Twitter. It says, when Herod heard that he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him, why all Jerusalem? Because the Jews knew that every time Herod is angry, people die. The wise men make a statement that make him so angry that murder will happen. And what ultimately was his plan? Where did the murder happen based on the news from the Magi? Anybody? Bethlehem. Infanticide. Every Jewish boy under the age of two would be killed because of what the Magi just said. Eugene Peterson, in his book, uh, The Jesus Way, writes that if we're trying to build a kingdom like Jesus was announcing, that Jesus had Herod, again, when he got older, Herod Archelaus, son of Herod the Great, he had Herod available as a mentor if he wanted it. Herod was skilled at brokering power. He was shrewd in his acquisitions of immense wealth. He shaped people's values and mindsets by the use of Greek theater and sporting events. His architecture impresses everyone, even to this day. So why didn't Jesus learn from Herod? Why not make the most, take the most brilliant kingdom builder as a mentor if you're trying to build your own kingdom? Because with Herod, nobody had done this kingdom thing any better than he did. All Jesus had to do was to adopt and to adapt. To adopt the values of Herod and then to adapt it to his own kingdom. Take all the political style and skills and acumen and shrewdness and tested principles and then just make it work under the rule of God. Why didn't he do that? Here's the thing. Jesus lived as if Herod never existed. All this power. Do you remember when the disciples, they're walking around at the temple, and they go, Jesus, look at how impressive these stones are. I mean, look at this. And he just ignores it. He's just not impressed. He only talks about Herod twice. The disciples to watch out for the yeast of Herod in Mark 5. Then he says, without using his name, he brushes him off in conversation and calls him a fox. It's not a positive term. Now think about Jesus, growing up in the midst of the undeniable influence of Herod, visiting his buildings, walking on the roads that he built, impacted by the oppression as a Jew under Herod's rule, and despite all of this, Jesus never gives Herod the time of day. Even though he doesn't acknowledge Herod's political power directly, but his birth announcement of the kingdom of God was extremely political. You know, Jesus goes on in his life to claim that he was the king. Jesus was the baby king. And then in the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, 
it says that he comes from the line of David, royal blood. And of course, in Matthew chapter 2, the Magi say, where is this newborn king of the Jews? Jesus was given the title son of David throughout the New Testament. David was one of the greatest kings in the history of Israel. And then Jesus, as an adult in Mark chapter 1, when his ministry begins, he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Jesus uses kingdom language. This is so explosive to say this. And Jesus later says, my kingdom is not of this world. Pilate asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And the sign above Jesus' head when he died on the cross said, king of the Jews with a crown, not of gold, but of thorns and a robe, not to worship him, but to mock him. The Jews wanted a king, a military hero, to overthrow the oppressive Roman Empire. They wanted a stalwart war hero. And here's why all of this background information matters. Here's how it impacts our life. We live in a world where Herod isn't king, but where the Herodian values still reign. Those values of wanting more, wanting to be on top, of being in power, of being in control, of being important. But when we understand the background of the Christmas story, it shows us that Jesus' arrival was deeply political, so political, in fact, that it transcends the, the entrenched politics between Republicans and Democrats. It's not about red states and blue states, but about a purple kingdom, the color of royalty. It's not about the donkey or the elephant, but about worshiping a lamb. And it's not about listening to what Fox News or CNN or NPR says, but about how we live in the way our king commands. This Christmas story is a story of power and reign and authority. Power and reign and authority that didn't end when Jesus died. It's still present today, which makes Advent and awaiting the king alarmingly personal for us. So much so that it can make us squirm in our seat. The Jews were looking for a king, a political, powerful, military leader king who would overthrow Herod and the Roman Empire. But instead, they got a suffering servant, one who didn't want to overthrow the king, but to love his enemies instead and have his kingdom subjects love their enemies too. And this becomes very personal for us here in this room and for us in America where we might expect a quote-unquote friendly savior, a savior, a Jesus, who we're more comfortable with, comfortable with seeing him as our buddy than as our king. And thus, when we do this, we miss the kind of king who actually is because we're so focused on the kind of king that we prefer. And if we're not careful, we can do everything possible in December except await the king and worship him. See, the truth of the Christmas story forces us to ask ourselves and each other questions like, if kings and kingdoms are about dominion and rule and authority and power, then who or what was that, has that in my life? Have I treated Jesus as a president or a nice religious prophet or some sort of political figure that I can either ignore or believe that I can vote out of office in my life? Or is Jesus actually king? And if he's king, am I comfortable with the fact that what he says goes no matter what? And when this occurs, this is what we mean when we say Jesus is Lord. 
If we say Jesus is Lord and have an asterisk with fine print at the bottom of the page of our lives, except this issue and that issue and this thing that Jesus said, then he's not really Jesus is Lord. He's either the king that rules and has dominion or he's not. See, the problem is that for many people in America and maybe even here in this room is that we've made Jesus president where we can vote him out of office. And when we've made God president in our lives and not king, then we're not ever fully going to understand the significance of the Advent season. To be kingdom agents, maybe the first thing we have to do is start by admitting that we've lost sight of the king in the first place. Jesus' arrival was so political that when the newborn king was born, people died because of him. But the king's message was so hope-filled and compassionate that he died for us. Let me say that again. Jesus' arrival was so political that when the newborn king was born, people died because of him. But the king's message was so hope-filled and compassionate that he died because of and for us. Now, we can strive for and even show our allegiance to Herodian principles of power, prestige, notoriety, greed, a desire for more. In fact, it's all around us. It's unavoidable in our culture this time of year, especially when we squeeze an extra packet of Christmas sentimentality on it. Or we can choose the way of Jesus, a different king with massively different values than what the world offers. But practically speaking, what does this mean for us? Well, practically, as we turn the dimmer switch up to grow brighter this Advent season of Jesus the King, maybe we need to turn the volume down, quite literally, the noise volume and the information volume. Maybe we need a season of Advent free from CNN or NPR or Fox News. Maybe we need to log off of Instagram and Facebook and Twitter for Advent. Maybe when it comes to watching TV, we just mute the commercials. What does it mean to, as, as we turn up the dimmer switch to see more of the brightness of Jesus to lower the noise and the information volume? Now, you don't have to do that, but I want to challenge you in order to prepare the way. Maybe it means turning the volume down. You know, as John the Baptist quoted in Isaiah 40, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. With that being said, I just want to end with a few questions and then a prayer. And these questions are intended to be very personal for us because Advent is intended to be very personal. So what affections or desires need to be made straight since, we've be, since they've become crooked? And what are the valleys in our thinking that need to be raised up when it comes to Jesus as king, not Jesus as elected official? What mountains or hills of personal, financial, vocational, and relational ambition need to be made low? What rough ground of our longings for more stuff or more attention or more whatever need to be made level in a way that pleases the king? And what rugged places of pride need to be confessed, repented of, and dealt with? May we 
be the kinds of people, brothers and sisters at Renew, who make the sacrifices in order to prepare the way for the coming of the King in the world and in our lives and to join the parousia with others as we go out to greet the King along the way and join him as he comes to our home. Renew, the King is coming. Will we, like 12-year-old Ravi Teja in Hyderabad, India, will we prepare the way for his arrival this year? Lord, thank you for the fact that you are the king. And sometimes we're grateful for that, but sometimes that's shocking. And sometimes that's difficult because we live in a democracy. And we're so grateful for the democracy that we live in, in terms of peaceful elections and being able to live with freedom. But Lord, we also want to know the reality that we have a good king and therefore we're invited to live into a best form of the good life because the king is good. Lord, forgive us when we've allowed the path to be so choppy and rough and rugged and difficult that even you coming to us isn't as accessible as you desire. Lord, may we be the kinds of people that make the sacrifices to go make that path smooth, to go meet you along the road, to prepare the way, and then as we join you, to have you come into our home with great joy and expectation because you are our king whom we love. And we thank you that you were a king full of so much love and compassion that you were willing to die on behalf of your kingdom's subjects so that we may truly live. That is the message of Advent. Help us to see that you are the king even in a world that promotes, celebrates, and worships Herodian principles even today. And may we live in such a way that Jesus is king so that we can say loudly, Jesus is Lord. And it's in the name of Jesus, the king, that we pray. Amen.